the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Company and other factors. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Thank you for joining us today. We've got two stories that are raw, but they're stories that you need to hear. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart as you listen to these. The love of Jesus is so incredibly awesome, and He loves you. He wants to bring you out of every darkness fully into the light. And he wants you on fire for the gospel, reaching out to others. Now, part of what we also believe very firmly is that Pilgrim's Progress National Prayer Chapel needs to do more than just preach the gospel. We need also to reach out to the poor. And so we had a campaign. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, we've been asking for those of you who would like to, to send in a donation for the Bra Party. It's an outreach to several women who are not Christians who are in need of new bras and can't afford them. So it's going to be pretty fun. It's a girl's day out. We'll go out to eat afterwards. And I was just rejoicing today We went to the post office, and one of you sent a very generous gift. We were asking for $600, and that amount has now come in. I thank you so much, my dear sister, for sending this gift and your love for these women. And I ask that you would continue to pray for us, that Jesus would truly meet these women on this outing, and that they would come to know him and to be converted and to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we've been praying. The party will be at 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon. Would you be praying at that time for these women? This is going to be a, a time of sharing the story of Jesus and his love in very practical ways and in very biblical ways. So thank you. We're excited about this. Well, today we're going to share two stories about women, and they're pretty raw, but we want you to hear them, and then we'll stop and we'll talk about them. We're reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pollinger. Miss Pollinger has been ministering in Hong Kong for over 50 years. And is still there. We've primarily shared stories about her work with the, she calls them the boys, the 
the young men aged from maybe 14 up until their 30s, sometimes 40s, and how they were freed from heroin and opium. But today we'll share some of her stories of rescuing women out of prostitution. They had literally been sold into prostitution. And Jesus opened a way to set them free. She writes, They might have been 20 years old. They might even have been 60. There was no way of telling. They'd given up all pretense of trying to look pretty or attractive. Their heads hung down as they squatted or propped themselves up against the wall and waited for customers. The prostitute who had bought Maria as a baby was preparing to retire. Now she either stood outside the Blue Film Theater, that's where they showed pornographic films, urging the voyeurs to sample the juvenile delights promised upstairs, or sat by the cubicles where the young girls were contained and counted up the money. So this prostitute had bought a baby and raised her as a prostitute so that when the woman who bought her could no longer work, she would rely on this younger woman to support her through prostitution. So Maria, the younger woman, was 13, and when her stepmother wanted her to begin work in the Walled City brothels, she rebelled. It was not that she found sleeping with different men morally repugnant, but the idea of having to sleep with old men for a fee did not attract her. Having been raised in a brothel, she thought it was merely a way of earning a living, and was indifferent to its social disadvantages. She was a very attractive, perky child with beautifully clear olive skin and expressive eyes, which she soon learned to use to her advantage. However, she was looking for love and attention, and enjoyed flirting with a boy she met at the youth club during its early days. So she ran away. Maria became a ballroom girl at a ballroom in Kowloon, there being little alternative for a teenage Chinese girl on her own. A ballroom girl was of a much higher class of prostitute. Indeed, she did not think of herself as a prostitute, but more as a hostess. Men paid for every dance they had with her. If a man chose to buy all her dances he could, and he would have to pay a further fee to take her home for the night. Every ballroom girl had a protector, who collected her earnings. Should the girl wish to change her man, a transfer fee of several thousand dollars had to be paid, either by the girl or by her new protector. I did not know where Maria was. All I could find out was that she'd run away from the walled city. She could have gone to any of the hundreds of ballrooms or brothels throughout Hong Kong and Kowloon, the longer she was missing, the more I worried. Eventually, one Sunday afternoon, after praying about her, I wandered off up the Jordan Road, asking God to lead me to where she was. Walk straight on. Don't turn to the left or the right. It was the first occasion since I had been baptized in the Holy Spirit that I had experienced another of the spiritual gifts, the word of knowledge. I did not hear a voice or see a white cloud, but I knew quite surely where God wanted me to go. I walked ahead, crossed the main road, and then understood just as clearly, stop here. I was standing outside of a tall, multi-apartment block that had many apartments with windows boarded up, posing as massage parlors, music halls, or hotels. 
At this point, completely denying the knowledge I had been given, I said, Lord, this is a silly game. I'm not playing spiritual detective anymore, and went home. A few days later, I dreamed of Maria and saw clearly the room she was living in and the man she was living with. I woke up crying, for I did not know how to find her and tell her that I cared about her. The only way for me to discover her whereabouts was through the Triad Network. Because of their control of the vice rackets, they were usually able to locate missing girls within days. I did not need to resort to black society methods, however, for a few months later Maria telephoned me herself. She said that she'd been trying to contact me for ages, but that she did not dare go back to the walled city and did not know my new telephone number. She gave me directions on the phone and I went to visit her. It was the same block outside of which I had stopped on that Sunday afternoon months earlier. It was the same room I had dreamed of, except that around the walls and on the ceiling there were many mirrors. After that, I visited Maria every Sunday afternoon. She told me how she loved her man and how she was in debt to her ballroom. Ballroom girls were issued with beautiful dresses and taught to dance, but the ballroom took the cost out of their future wages. Because of these debts, a ballroom girl could not leave her ballroom without paying quite a large sum. Maria was trapped. She felt that one way out of the trap was to become pregnant, so she became pregnant by her protector, but then had the baby aborted. She became pregnant a second time and went to live with her protector's mother. After the baby was born, she got a job in a factory. But her protector's family, friends, and even her protector himself looked down on her because she had been a ballroom girl. Eventually, the lack of friendliness made her feel that it was not worth being a good girl and working hard in a factory so she decided that she might as well go back to the ballroom. I'll just want to add here, this is quite a lesson for us not to be shunning of people who have had a bad past, because that may lead to them going back to those things which they left, because they feel that they haven't really been forgiven and given a new life. Her baby girl stayed with the granny, she was called Jackion after me. I put savings into the bank for the baby school, but sadly, Maria and her protector spent the money on themselves. Maria found a new protector, but she still was not content and became more and more unhappy. Every night she danced and danced. To keep going, she used pep pills, and when the dance hall closed, she could not sleep as she was too revved up. She went off to the gambling dens with the other girls, and the inevitable happened. She ran into debt and was forced to borrow money from a loan shark. Many loan sharks in Hong Kong charge 20% interest daily, and soon she was hopelessly insolvent. The loan shark then demanded that she become a snake, which meant his property as a prostitute for two years while he kept all her earnings to pay off her debts. Maria called me in a panic, and her voice was high with terror. To be forced to be a snake was for her the ultimate humiliation. As a ballroom girl, she was independent in a way, but now she was to be a prisoner to a ruthless man who would extract every penny she earned. She wanted me to produce 1,500 Hong Kong dollars to save her from this fate, but I didn't even have $15. My greatest concern, however, was whether she was sincere. 
She had prayed to receive Christ in the past, but had not made any serious effort to follow him. I had no intention of paying money to a girl who was not serious about changing her life, for she would just so soon end up in the same mess again. But clearly I had to go and see her, and I decided to take Ah Ping with me. He'd been in her world, and I needed his worldly discernment to know if she was exploiting me. Together we prayed about it. When I reviewed my material assets, I thought of the only thing I had in the world of any financial value, a very precious and favorite oboe. I had played it for years in the Hong Kong Philharmonic Orchestra, and like all oboists, regard regarded it as a personal friend, hand-picked and almost irreplaceable. Knowing nothing of my secret riches, Ah Ping had an interpretation of a message in tongues. He said, The Lord Jesus Christ gave up his most precious possession for you, his life. Why do you store up your treasures on earth? You should rather store up treasure in heaven. If Jesus had given up his life, what was an oboe in comparison? What could I say? All right, Maria, I told her. I will pay the money on two conditions. The first is that you let me hand over the cash in person. The second is that you leave this kind of life. I'll help you find a job, a room, anything you like. But if you remain here, you'll be in trouble again. They'll never agree to deal with you, argued Maria. Michael is very exacting and very particular about his debts. However, she had no choice, and so set up a meeting in a tea room on Jordan Road for two nights later at half-past midnight. I sadly sold my oboe and filled a brown business envelope with fifteen one-hundred-dollar bills. I arrived at the restaurant and chose a central table, where Maria and I drank coffee while we waited for Michael, the sharp-toothed loan shark. Squealing tires harrowed did the arrival of the collecting agents. Michael had not come himself, but had sent four men, who slouched into the room Chicago-style while their engine growled outside. Barely glancing at us, they picked up the envelope, and after checking the contents in the manner of a gambler checking a deck of cards, walked out again without speaking. I was very disappointed. They'd play the scene too quickly. They were about to go through the door when I called out, Hey, wait! One of them looked back, raised his eyebrows, and said disdainfully, What do you want? I want to see Michael, I replied. What do you want to see him about then, huh? The spokesman sounded extremely condescending. I've got a very important message for him. Well, you can give us the message. No, I replied. I have to give this message to him in person. What is it? It's a very personal message. I must tell him myself. How can I find him? Slightly to my surprise, they gave me his telephone number, and even more surprising, when I rang him up, he agreed to see me. I was summoned to a skyscraper in a smart part of Kowloon. Michael's nightclub was on the 21st floor. It was clearly very exclusive. The doorman let me in with a golden key at least three feet long, after having vetted me through a spy hole. I was expected. Inside were thick carpets and soft lighting, and everywhere there were enormous teddy bears on the bar, on the tables, around the walls. 
Each table had a telephone connected with the cubicles upstairs. The members sat with their drinks downstairs, and when they wanted a girl, they dialed her number. This, then, was the club that Maria would have been working at, had the money not been paid. I sat at one of the downstairs tables and waited and waited. Various minions were sent to offer me drinks. I was studiously attended to. Eventually, Michael himself came to grant me an interview. He was a smoothie. He looked very pleasant and well-groomed as he sat down opposite me. He spoke with glib eloquence about the terrible problems of living in Hong Kong and how without this loan business he could not afford to send his eleven brothers and sisters to school. As it was, he was able to support all of his family, including his mother, on the proceeds. Indeed, he felt that he actually had a service to provide to the community. When parents lost their children, they often asked Michael to help, and for a fee, he could usually find missing children within 48 hours. He knew all the clubs, bars, ballrooms, and could trace them through his triad connections. After completing his self-justification, he began to attack. You're a fool. You've lost that money. You may have thought you were doing something very noble by paying for that girl, but I know her and know that what she is is not going to change. She's going to go back into the same thing. Do not think she is going to be grateful to you or change her life in any way. You've just seen the end of that money. You've been tricked into making a completely wasted gesture. Well, that really doesn't matter, I said. I'll tell you why I did it. Have you heard about Jesus? He'd heard some of the Bible stories. I explained, Jesus is the one who did all those miracles. He was the one perfect man who had ever lived. He only did good, healed people, raised them from the dead. But his enemies put him on a cross and killed him. He died for my sake. But he did not wait until I was good before he died for me. He never said he would die for me only if I changed. While I ignored him, he laid down his life for me, and even as he was dying, he still said he forgave me. That's what Jesus did for me, and that's what I want Maria to understand. I stopped, uncertain if he'd understood my English, but aware that he was too proud to speak Chinese. She won't change. She'll go back to her old ways. It was a wasted gesture. Well, I would rather be a fool and lose the money. After all, what's losing the money? Jesus lost a life. I would rather be a fool and lose money than be a cynic and see her go to hell. Now she has a chance of a new life, whether she wants to take it or not. It's up to her now. I can't change her life, but she has the opportunity Jesus made that opportunity. Michael opened his mouth to reply, but no sound came. He'd been struck dumb. His mouth opened and shut, his lips formed words, but his throat was paralyzed by emotions. Minutes passed. Still he could not speak. His eyes filled with tears. 
Finally, with his eyes turned away, he croaked, I have nothing to say. And then he was silent. I never saw Michael again, but I was joined in the lift by one of the club employees whom Michael had granted permission to come after me. Can I talk to you? he asked. I was surprised and a little nervous at his motives, but he went on. I want to hear about being a Christian. Can you tell me where there's a place I can go? It was three in the morning. There was nowhere nearby where we could talk except a bar. So we sat for the rest of the night, our coffee cups on either side of an open Bible. By the time I'd started to take boys into my house, and obviously could not invite Maria to share it, even if she was willing to come. She had already discovered that helping, we had already discovered that helping such girls was much more difficult than helping the boys, as very few of them wanted a new life. Many had no feelings of doing anything wrong. They knew that society officially disapproved of their profession but felt that the stigma attached was well worth the freedom they gained. They were free to enjoy themselves and make money and escape the drudgery. Most young girls retained their illusions for some time. They loved their boyfriends romantically and willingly supported them and only realized that they were being exploited several years later. By that time, they knew no other life and discovered that they'd not brought freedom at all, but were captives to the game. There were no homes for retired prostitutes and no pensions either. A girl had to become hard and either attach herself to a wealthy man or trick her protector so that she could amass money for the years when she would no longer be desirable or serviceable. Even if a girl genuinely desired to change her lifestyle, the men she supported would naturally resist, and there might be a seven or eight of them. Some girls would have liked to leave, but they were in debt to the club where they worked and feared their pimps. During my visits to Marie's ballroom, I met many such girls. Long before they admitted their desperation, even to themselves, they were popping pills in the girls' restroom while I chatted with them. One evening, I received a phone call at Lung Kong Road from Frederick, one of the Walled City Club boys. Miss Poon, he spoke very quietly, I have a friend who's been beaten up for trying to leave the triads. Before we go on to that second story, several very significant things have been said in this first story. First, that Jesus loves you and he loves me. And he has given us an opportunity to leave our old life of sin and be washed in his blood, be cleansed and purified, and start over. But it's up to us whether we choose to do that. I don't know what Maria's final decision was. The story does not tell us. But the wonderful opportunity this precious woman made the decision to sell her oboe. You may recall 
She was a graduate student, had her master's in oboe performance. She just sold what she needed to make her way if she wanted to change her life, but she was utterly given over to Jesus. And so Jesus opened the way for us to have salvation before we'd even accepted the salvation. That way is open for you today. I wonder if any of you listening to this broadcast are prostitutes. I wonder if any of you listening are pimps, drug dealers. But it's not just pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers. You see, there is the bondage of poverty and the bondage of drugs, the bondage of work that we hate, that is unclean, that's filthy. But there's also a bondage of prosperity where you have no hunger because you have everything you want. And church then is more of a social event, a social occasion. Your heart is not on fire for Jesus. It's not brimming with love for what he's done for you. Your heart is lukewarm or cold. We come saying, we want revival in Washington, D.C. And revival is when every man and every woman turns their heart toward Jesus and earnestly seeks after him and receives from Jesus a transformed and new life to begin serving and loving others. We come on this radio broadcast to serve you, and we share these stories to serve you. We want you to come into the fullness of Jesus if you're not already there. Now, thank you. Many of you are already in the fullness of Jesus and you're rejoicing and you're having wonderful times of prayer and scripture and fellowship and you're having wonderful times of ministering to other people. I praise God for you. Please pray for us as we do the radio and pray for others. No matter what the situation you find yourself in today, we serve a Lord who can deliver you and who wants to deliver you and bring you into a new life of glorious freedom. Now we're going to read a second story. It's a painful story as well. Let's share it. One evening I received a phone call from Frederick, one of the Walled City Club boys. Miss Poon, He spoke very quietly. I have a friend who's been beaten up for trying to leave the triads. This person is desperate and has nowhere to escape. Can we come to your house? Fine, Fred. What about tomorrow morning? I answered. I liked the idea of the church being a sanctuary. Too dangerous, he said. My friend cannot risk being seen by the gangs. He'll come when it's dark. The following evening, I opened the door to receive receive my smuggled fugitive and saw with shock that Fred had delivered a girl. Because of the lack of gender in Chinese speech, I'd naturally assumed that it was a boy running from the triads. Actually, she looked more like a beanpole than a girl. She was emaciated, 
and had arms and legs like stalks. Her eyes were dark and bruised. Hurriedly, I let her in and tried to talk to her, but she would not utter a word that evening or for some time to come. Nods and headshakes sufficed for her conversational needs. Her name was Angel. Frederick told me that she'd been employed as a prostitute by a gang in Moncock. This was because her mother had no room for her in their resettlement room. Several members of the family were already sleeping in the passage, so the mother gave Angel to the man who asked for her, saying that she hoped they would marry. She knew that he was already married, but she convinced herself that marriage was not out of the question and that the partnership would be economically advantageous. But it didn't work out that way. Instead of the man providing for her, Angel found herself not only supporting him, but also four or five others. Every night she was sent to a brothel where she worked. Some of the brothels employed boys as young as fourteen to watch the girls. The boys sat and played cards, looked at television, or, or ate. They were there to make sure the girls worked proper hours and did not escape. They had no need to use force. One night Angel did not turn up for work, and when she returned to the Moncock flat she was beaten up by her boyfriend. He told her that he would beat her to death if she did not go to work in the future. Angel did not want to be beaten any more, neither did she want to continue to work as a prostitute, but she had nowhere to go instead. If she went home, her boyfriend would find her. If she rented a room, the triads could locate her within 48 hours. She had no friends except other bar girls who would also be with their men. The only other person she knew was Frederick, so she went to him. He had nowhere to conceal her, so she came to us. Angel looked 17, but she was actually 25 and rather simple-minded. After a few days, she understood enough to accept that Jesus loved her, not because she would go out and earn him money, but because he loved her as she was and forgave her. So she became a Christian, and we saw some kind of animation light up her vacant eyes. Although she had started a new life, poor Angel could obviously never be free to walk around in Hong Kong while the situation remained as it was. This was unfinished business, and gang law required a settlement. There had to be a talk-out to decide on a separation fee before Angel was officially transferred. Otherwise, if she were seen in the street, the gang would snatch her back, disfigure her, throw acid at her, or start a gang war against us. I arranged with Angel that we should meet her former boyfriend. I phoned him and chose the Hong Kong Hotel coffee shop because it had several entrances and exits and we could not be trapped. It was also public enough to prevent Angel's men from abducting her without attracting attention. I also called the police and told them that we were having this kind of talk, and whereas it obviously did not warrant anyone coming to make arrests, it would be helpful if someone were keeping an eye open. They kindly agreed. One of the boys accompanied Angel and me to the hotel, where we found a whole table of triads sitting with a boyfriend. As the discussion progressed, I gradually became aware that dotted around the coffee shop were several more tables occupied by their gang brothers. They watched us and directed questioning glances at Angel's boyfriend. I guessed that these dozen or more men 
were all there because they could only imagine that Angel had fled to another triad. I could see that I was not making much of an impression. I left Angel to do the talking until I realized that she was not discussing anything at all, but agreeing with everything her protector said. It was a habit of years, and I could see us leaving the hotel and getting into separate taxis while she meekly went back to being a whore. I entered the conversation, but the boyfriend was adamant. He would not release her. He then became quite maudlin and disgusting as he tried to convince both me and himself that he really loved and missed Angel. A very strange way you have of showing your love, I retorted, sending her out to do this job and expecting her to support you. I think you're just sorry about losing your income. I am not willing to give her up. She is rightfully mine. She was given to me by her parents, he persisted. Angel has no chance of any kind of life with you. You cannot even marry her, I said. She wants to break away and start a new life. She's come to believe in Jesus. This meant nothing to him, and he commanded Angel to leave with him. I hung onto her arm so he could not force her. The boy hung onto her other arm, and thus in unwieldy formation we walked out of the door and into a taxi. We were pulling away from the curb, relieved that Angel was still with us, when the boyfriend leaped at the vehicle and climbed into the front seat. He would not leave, so I directed the taxi on a long detour so that he would not find out our address. I didn't want him to trace Angel. Our front seat rider swung around to blow her over the back of his seat. My boss will be extremely angry about this. He will not let Angel go. This matter must be finished. I need your phone number. I refused to give the number and said that I would contact him again and we could talk some more. At last he climbed out of the taxi and we went home. It was all very unsatisfactory and we decided that Angel should not go to the next talk out because they might actually snatch her back. We called and made an appointment to see them again. They said we should choose the place so I chose the Diamond Cafe just opposite of our apartment in Lung Kong Road. Angel's boyfriend advised that this time it should only be Angel and myself. Nobody else should come. He would come by himself and not bring anyone else. I did not completely trust him about this. I was also worried about the threat of violence from a different direction for the boys in Lung Kong Road were getting quite protective about Angel and me. This was just what I did not want to have happen, because if there was any trouble or any violence, despite the fact that they were Christians, their instinct would be to fight, and therefore they ought not to be in such a situation. So we spent the morning looking up the stories of Gideon and Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament where they were facing impossible odds but did not have to fight at all. Simply by praising God, by singing, they got the victory. I wanted our boys to know that we did not have to fight. I was not particularly worried for myself, although I would be really frightened if somebody wanted to kill or slash me. I would not be likely to grab a knife and stab back, more likely I would fall to my knees, pray, and die. This would be rather much to expect from the boys. 
couple of hours before the meeting was scheduled, the street was beginning to fill as Angel's men were staked out at various points and up the back alleys. I had the boys lined up on our roof where they could see the cafe without seeing themselves. I said, your job is to pray. And if you see any violence going on, you can ring the police. But you are not to rush out to defend me or anything like that. They were all ready to run into the walled city and get Goko to send out men to fight the other gang. I had to explain forcibly as Christians, you cannot do this. You cannot fight a spiritual battle this way. You're not to get involved physically. We really prayed about this, and then I began. It was ready to go to the appointment, and I left Angel behind. When I got to the calf, I found that this time Angel's boyfriend had not come himself, but had sent his gang leader, who also was a burly, brutal figure. There were also five or six of his cohorts there, and I knew that there were many others outside. He was furious that I'd not brought Angel. Obviously, they'd been ready to snatch her. Don't think I'm going to stand on ceremony just because you're a Jesus lady or you have something to do with church, he said. He did not know that I had anything to do with the walled city, so I foolishly attempted to witness by mentioning some of the boys, once Goko's followers, who now were following Jesus. He leaped to the conclusion that I had something to do with the 14K. Right, he said, that settles it. We're not going to stand on ceremony with you any longer. He banged on the table furiously and got up shouting until the whole calf was terrified. You have to produce this girl. We're not going to let you go unless you bring her. Well, he ranted while I tried to tell him about Jesus, but he didn't want to hear. I was struck, I thought. I tried to... I was stuck, I thought. I tried to tell him about Jesus, and he doesn't want to hear that. Neither is he going to listen to reason about the girl. I'm really concerned. I was frightened. Excuse me, can I make a telephone call? I telephoned my house, which was they still did not know was opposite, and spoke to Willie, an old man who was with us, who'd been helping us for a year. Don't look now, but outside the calf there are two cars with men with knives in them, he said, and it sounded as if he was speaking out of the side of his mouth. They're waiting there. I was terrified, so I whispered to Willie, call the police. I went back to my seat and told them that Angel was not coming, so they would have to talk out with me and that Angel wanted to follow Jesus. They could not understand what I was talking about. I was certainly no substitute for her. As the police cars arrived, the weapons cars slid away, and when the policemen came into the cafe, all was tranquility. Here were all these young men having a cup of coffee with a European girl. The young men, of course, did not have knives on them, and I could hardly say to the policemen, look, these men are threatening me, because they were not. I went out to the lavatory at the back, and there was one of the policemen there too, so I said, excuse me, 
but there are men with knives outside in cars. No, there's no one there. Do you want me to search the café, he asked. It's no good searching the café. You won't find anything. So the police all went away again, and as they went, the cars came back. I was still stuck there, not knowing what to do. The one thing that I could do in this situation was pray, but I could not pray in English, for I was in a complete blue funk. I decided to pray in tongues very quietly so that they could not hear. My knees were shaking under the table. I went on praying. I had no idea what I was going to do next, for the gang was getting more and more furious and I could not see how it was going to end. Finally, I got up saying, I have to go and buy some vegetables. Trembling violently, I walked out of the calf, and as I walked out, I could see men getting out of the cars, which were parked close together. They were walking toward me. I did not know what would happen, and still more frightened that the walled city boys would leap in and fight on my behalf. Mercifully, a minibus was passing, and although I did not know where it was going, I jumped on and got away. I went straight to the police station. I want to report something. I'm afraid there might be a murder. I tried to tell the police about the emergency phone call and about the men with knives looking for Angel. I'm sure they're going to go to her family's house. They don't know where I live yet and have no way of finding out my address. But they're going to go to her home, and I know they're going to give her family members trouble. I gasped incoherently. They all looked very bored and asked, Where does she live? In Shepkip May, I told them. Well, that's not our district. They sounded irritated. Would you mind going to the Shepkip May police station? But can't you call from here, I asked them. I'm afraid there might be a murder. A police inspector sitting there looked around at me and smirked. Madam, he intoned, people get killed every day. Yes, I know they do, I said impatiently. But I just want to tell you before it happens because I'd like to stop this one. I made such a fuss that eventually they said they would take me to Shepkick May police station in one of their vehicles. I found the second police station equally unhelpful. This should be Kowloon City business as the 999 call was made from there, they complained. Anyway, what do you expect us to do about it? Look, here's her address, I said. Here's where her family lives. I'm pretty sure that this gang is going to go to her family and give them problems. We can't someone can't send someone to watch there all the time. We've got a lot of jobs to do. I know you can't, but could you tell the policemen on the beat to watch out for this address and to keep their eyes open? This all took about six hours, and eventually a very helpful inspector took an unofficial report, as there was no way that he could make it official since nothing had actually happened. Twelve hours later, I got a desperate phone call from one member of Angel's family, I deliberately had not given them my address, as the gang would have gotten it out of them. I'm out shopping, and I can see up onto the balcony of the resettlement block, she said in a shaking voice. There are five men sitting in my family's house, and they won't leave, 
and there are other men sitting on the stairs with weapons and with iron bars. I immediately called the police. The long six-hour wrangle with them the night before proved its value because they were already informed and got their policemen there very quickly. Most of the men managed to escape, but they captured two or three of them. The police managed to put fear in them by implying that if they felt like it, they could get this gang into a lot of trouble. Angel was never bothered again. The strangest part of the whole story was yet to come. Angel's family told me later that they'd been terrified when the gang came and sat in their house. They were questioned as to where I lived and where our church was. Mercifully, they did not know, and so they could not tell. Anyway, who is this Jesus lady, and who are these Christians? asked one of the gang. Our angel used to be so obedient. She'd do anything we wanted before, and now she dares to resist us. Did you see that Jesus woman's eyes? When we were sitting in that cafe, we were frightened. We didn't dare look into her eyes because she has some kind of power. The word they used implied a supernatural power or strength. When I heard that, I really rejoiced, because it had been one of the most frightening moments of my life, and I was completely out of my depth, yet they were more frightened than I was, and hadn't dared touch me because they recognized a spiritual power. Now that Angel's freedom was secured, we could not keep her in Long Kong Road in the middle of boys who were trying to start a new life. Since Jean and Rick had moved to the Hong Kong side to accommodate more people at the Saturday meeting, their Meifu house was available for the few months the lease still had to run. We decided to pull Angel there, together with two girls who had been referred by the courts, and the girlfriend of one of the addicts, who was going through withdrawal in our houses. Sarah stayed to be the house mother, and so the girl's house began. Another of the difficulties in rehabilitating girls was that no one ever forgot their past. Somehow there was a kind of glory attached to a man's crimes. He could be forgiven, and if they were not forgotten, at least no one blamed him for them. For a girl, however, it was different. Even if she became a Christian, no one forgot what she had once been. Although the lease soon expired, and we were unable to continue the girl's house, we'd learned much through this experience. Angel, who had never been to school in her life, had begun to read a little. She was never molested again, and later married a very nice young Christian man with a proper legal job. Well, there you have it. Two stories out of Chasing the Dragon in Hong Kong. One story, we don't know what the end was, but we know that Jesus, through a great sacrifice of, of Jackie Pullinger, was given the opportunity of a new life in Jesus. The second woman was rescued by the power of Jesus. I want you to know that that power is available for you. But you have to be hungry. You have to want to be delivered. Some of you, I fear, are, are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're filled with cynicism, anger, bitterness. You're full of pornography and alcohol 
even drugs. Jesus wants to offer you a new life. He's making that available for you right now. Any thoughts, Alexandra, about these two stories? These are two very uh, powerful and deeply moving stories. And they really show that if we are going to be sincere in endeavoring to bring people to Jesus, we can't just stop it saying, well, I guess she's a Christian, even though she's still going to be a prostitute for the rest of her life. I just so admire this woman's courage. I mean, she really put her life on the line to save this young lady angel out of prostitution. And the significant part is that Angel truly wanted to leave that life. She saw that her life of prostitution was going to be her death. She was a slave. And she wanted to be free. In the second book she wrote, there's a quote from one of the addicts who came to Jesus. And he says, I thank God for sending Miss Pullinger. Because there are many people who are alive today who would have been dead if it weren't for her. And that's what we've seen in these stories today. She really saved these people's lives, both now and for eternity. And my question is, what are you willing to do to reach out to the people who are around you? What are you willing to give? What are you willing to sacrifice? What kind of time are you willing to give and you say to me but pastor I don't have any time I'm just trying to survive well that's why you don't have any time and that's why you're trying to survive the focus has to be on the work of the gospel on salvation for others it has to be pouring your life out for others not just enriching yourself providing for yourself, living your life as you choose to. There is a time when we first become Christians where we are growing and learning, but our real life and our real freedom in Jesus comes because we're now free to reach out and love others. And as we reach out and love others, they respond, or they don't respond, and either way it's okay. I'm thinking about this wonderful get-together on Sunday that my wife will share with some very poor women who are not Christians. What if none of them want a new life in Jesus? What if the bondage that they're in is too strong and they don't want to break that bondage? Is it okay that still they were taken out and loved and cared for? Of course. Of course. Well, the money was wasted on them. No, it wasn't. We don't know how Jesus will use that in their hearts and in their lives. Jesus wants to save you from either mundane religion, cold-hearted religion, formal religion, empty religion he wants to save you and bring you into this wonderful saving relationship with himself and share 
his love with you so you can be set free so you can reach out and set others free now the story doesn't tell us but I can guarantee you that this dear woman who is saved from prostitution and becomes a real Christian will immediately with her husband begin to serve the Lord and draw others to Jesus that's the story of the gospel the the kingdom of God well we are out of time for today's broadcast we have just a couple of minutes left share where we can hear from people you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress we're Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel you can write to us at the National Prayer Chapel Post Office Box 2346 Woodbridge, Virginia 22195 That address again The National Prayer Chapel Post Office Box 2346 Woodbridge, Virginia 22195 You can also visit our webpage nationalprayerchapel.com That's nationalprayerchapel.com We've been sharing from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger if you visit our webpage, you'll be able to listen to this message again, as well as past messages. You can contact us. You can donate through the webpage. And we also invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for National Prayer Chapel. We're so grateful that you listened to this broadcast. Tomorrow, Friday, we will have a special broadcast airing by Jackie Pullinger. Don't uh, miss it. An incredible sermon. Don't miss it. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.